Welcome to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast with Jacob Ayers, providing actionable content to help you along your journey to financial freedom through real estate investing. As the premier asset class, real estate has helped ordinary people just like you amass fortunes. The benefits of passive income from real estate investing will allow you to live a life you want. And now your host, entrepreneur, real estate investor, and apartment deal syndicator, Jacob Ayers. to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast. Welcome back. Hi, I'm your host, Jacob Ayers. Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode. I'm so glad you're here. This week, our guest is Mauricio Raul. Mauricio is the founder and CEO of Premier Law Group, which is a premier boutique securities law firm. As a nationally recognized expert on private placements, Mauricio works with elite entrepreneurs who seek to increase and protect their wealth through syndications. Mauricio specializes in Regulation D exempt offerings and educates investors from around the world on how to navigate the complex world of securities laws. Known for taking complex matters and making them simple to understand, Mauricio sometimes jokingly referred to as one of the few lawyers who actually speaks English. So without further ado, I'm excited to welcome on the show Mauricio Raul. Let's jump right into it. All right, today I welcome on the show Mauricio Raul, the anti-lawyer syndication attorney himself. Mauricio, hey, thanks so much for joining us. Hey man, thanks for having me. Really, I uh, really appreciate it. Looking forward to this. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Well, Mauricio, we're going to be talking today about all the rules and regulations around raising capital and syndicating deals. But before we get into that, can you just kind of take a second, tell us who you are, your background and kind of your experience in this whole real estate investing world? Sure, I'd love to. Uh, you know, I'll try and keep it brief. I mean, at the end of the day, I am a syndication attorney, which is just code word for an SEC lawyer. So I just make sure that Anybody who's raising capital does so in full compliance with uh, federal and state securities laws. Didn't start like that. In fact, I went to school up in Berkeley, actually, and then went to law school down here in LA and went to work for a litigation firm, securities, but it was litigation. So I did all the, you know, answering complaints and doing motions and doing trials and depositions and all that fun stuff. Long story short, even though I worked for a really amazing firm, I realized early on that's not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. There's a whole bunch of stories I can go into, but that'll take up all the podcast. <laughs> but, uh, the short of it is I knew that something was off. Like I didn't want to do that forever. I saw partners that were there for you know 20 years going into the office at 7 a.m. in the morning on a Sunday. And I'm like, you know, yeah. I, don't, I don't want to do that. That's definitely not something I want to do. I just knew there was something more to what I was doing. And then as off as many, I'm sure, of your listeners happened, I, I came across Robert Kiyosaki's little purple book, uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which was a game changer for me and kind of, I wouldn't say it opened up my eyes, but it confirmed sort of what in the back of my mind didn't seem to make sense. This book made it all make sense. And so luckily for me, right after I read that book, because of him, I read the book, blew me away, as many of you have. Then I heard an, a radio ad that he did that I would not have heard if I hadn't read the book. If he would, you know, if the ad comes up and says, "Hey, I'm Robert Kiyosaki, author of Rich Dad Poor Dad," I would have been like, yeah, "I don't, I don't know." And he was promoting the real estate guys, uh, Robert and Russ, who 
were coming down to Southern California with their sort of a mentoring program that they had. And so I actually, because of that ad, got to meet them. I went to their seminar and that started the ball rolling for me, eventually leaving the law firm and going to work in-house for the real estate guys and doing all of their syndications and asset protection and stuff like that. And then over the years, you know, they have a big tribe and I just started helping them out, you know, with obviously their permission, helping their students out. And that kind of grew into a little bit of a side business. And then that kept growing and growing to the point that I left the real estate guys, created my own firm, Premier Law Group, back in, I think, officially 06, 07, and then started, you know, basically that's how I started my own firm back then. And, you know, when you start your own firm, you do anything that puts food on the table, right? So I was doing a little bit of everything and then finally <laughs> narrowed, it down, narrowed it down to like syndication and asset protection. Those are kind of my two main things for many, many years. And then at some point, I think it was about five or six years ago, I decided to do syndication just full time. So 100% of my practice, my personal practice now is syndication and 99% of my clients are real estate investors. So they're real estate investors buying not multifamily alone. They're buying mobile home parks, uh, self-storage, uh, single family, you know, retail, kind of the gamut of the majority is multifamily. And then last year, basically because of people asking, that's one of the nice things. One of the things I like to do is listen. So one of the feedbacks I was getting was, hey, why don't you bring in kind of a real estate attorney? Everybody thinks I'm a real estate attorney because of my affiliation with the real estate guys, but yeah. I don't know anything about real estate law. And so I brought in, uh, I brought in uh, my good Carrie, who's just a rock star. And so now we do it all. Now I work on the, Bethany and I work on the syndication side, and then Carrie can handle all the real estate transactional stuff. Sure. Well, when we're talking about the world real estate investing, Mauricio, what is so important to real estate investors out there? And what should they know about the SEC and why that pertains to them? Great question. A lot of people that are starting out, this is probably one of the biggest mistakes they make. They don't realize that they even have to worry about securities laws or the SEC because why should they? They're just buying a piece of property. Like what? The SEC involved in my business. And the reason for that is the definition of a security that the SEC comes up with is really, really broad. And it doesn't just include, you know, LLC units or stocks and bonds and all that kind of stuff that most people, you know, instinctively realize a security. But anytime you are taking money from someone where the returns are generated by your efforts, you're dealing with the security. So in essence, anytime you're taking money from passive investors when they're just writing a check and they're going home and you're doing all the work and then giving them a return, that's going to be a security, whether you're buying real estate with that money or buying, you know, oil or stocks or whatever, that is a security. And therefore the securities and exchange Commission gets involved because they're the ones that oversee, uh, you know, securities compliance stuff. They're kind of there to be that stopgap to make sure you're not out there taking little ladies' money. Essentially, is how I look at it, right? That's exactly. I mean, that's the idea. The idea is, you know, just like any consumer protection program, uh, they feel like, you know, you're not. You know, I'm a little sarcastic here, but you're not smart enough to understand these things, and you need to be protected because otherwise, uh, somebody's going to swindle you out of your money and you know give you a phone call and not tell you all the bad things about the deal, just about the good things and mislead you and do all these things. And so these rules have come up that basically force you or which is not a bad thing, but basically requires you to basically let the investor know everything about the deal, all the risks involved, all the disclosures, you know, the documentation reads, reads like a medical consent form. It just tells you all the ways your deal can go south. And that's now part of the requirements, depending on you know what procedure we go through. Yeah, sure. When we're talking about offering securities to passive investors, what are some of these rules, regulations, and exceptions that we often see these kind of 
How do we see these deals structured, in other words? Yeah, look, I always kind of joke that once you understand that you're dealing with the security, then there's only three things you worry about. Registering it with the SEC, finding an exemption, or it's illegal. It's really that simple. And so <laughs> we never register you know, with the SEC. That's basically going public. You don't have, it's like an IPO or something, like right? Like an IPO. It's going to yeah. take you know, 18 months. It's going to take you a lot of money. And you know, you're going to have to get permission from the SEC. And there's like a ton of compliance. You just don't want to go that route. So everybody goes through these exemptions. And you know, 95% of people will rely on the two most popular exemptions, which is probably what your listeners have heard of, which is a Rule 506B and Rule 506C. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these are two rules that fall under this generalized, what's called a Reg D offering, which is another term you may have heard of. So there's reasons for it, but those are the ones that 95% of the people use. And actually between those two, between the B and the C, the 506B and the 506C, 90% of people still use 506B, which is the old rule. The C has only been around for, I guess, coming on seven years now, but it still hasn't gotten the traction that most people thought. uh, And we can talk a little bit about why, but that's why you'll hear most people talk about rule 506B because that's probably the most popular exemption that people rely on. Yeah. So let's compare and contrast those two just a high level. And then I'd like to dig into why that 506C is, you know, just now starting to gain traction outside of its age into the world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, the pivot point, the difference between these two, there's really two main pivot points. One is advertising, right? In the old days, you could not advertise, period, Mm -hmm. uh, with these rules. Then in 2013, C allowed you to advertise. So that's going to be the first pivot point. Like, do you want to advertise or do you feel like you have some kind of a pre-existing relationship with your potential investors? Are they friends, family, and people in your network? If you need to go advertise, then you have to go 506C because one of the restrictions of the B is you cannot advertise. So that's yes. kind of the first pivot point. And then the second pivot point is whether you are looking to raise money from what we call non-accredited investors. And non-accredited investors are people who have, I'm going to do this reverse, usually it's the other way around. But people who have less than a million dollars in net worth, excluding their primary residence, or earn less than $200,000 a year, yeah. will have that for the last two years with a reasonable expectation of earning this year. So again, if you're just starting out and you're trying to take money from friends and family and your Aunt Jenny, then they don't happen to have the net worth, then again, you wouldn't be able to do 506C because 506C, although it's nice because it allows you to advertise, the main limitation with the 506C is that you cannot accept non-accredited investors. So those are usually the first two questions that start the conversation to figure out which direction we want to go between those two exemptions. And when you're talking about advertising in this sense, it's advertising to like the general public or people you don't have a pre-existing relationship with, right? Correct. You cannot generally advertise or generally solicit too. So the other thing you cannot do, for example, is go to um, you know, a conference or something and just set up a booth and start handing out your business plan or something. You generally have to have what you just mentioned, a pre-existing substantive relationship. It's not the only way to do it, but the rule, the law assumes that if you do have this pre-existing relationship, then by definition, you have not advertised or generally solicited because you already knew the person pretty well. Yeah, sure. Well, when we're talking about the landscape in today's environment, you know, I can maybe come to the conclusion that now more so than ever, it's important to really be in compliance with, you know, these rules and regulations and kind of having your I's dotted, T's crossed, et cetera. Would you agree there? Well, you know, you're talking to the securities lawyer, so I would have argued <laughs> that you needed to do that from the get-go. I think the distinction is, and this is the danger that's been going on for many years, is that 
you know, a lot of people rely on the golden rule defense, meaning everything goes fine. You know, you could have violated every single securities laws on the books, but if at the end of the day you took investors' money, even if you took it illegally, and you made a nice return for them as promised, and then you returned all their money and they're out, then nobody's going to complain, right? Everybody got their money, everybody's happy, and they're probably willing to give you their you know, money right back to you so you could do it again. The problem comes, of course, when things don't go as planned, and at some point, the market starts to level off or the market starts to turn, and people who especially bought, whether it's real estate or any asset, at the peak of the market or as the tail end of the market, they get caught and they no longer can not only provide the returns to the investors, but it may well be that they can't hold on to the, the asset, the property, and end up losing money from the investors. And that's when the issues start popping up because nobody complains when things are going great. People complain and the way these things get triggered usually is with an investor complaint. Somebody picks up the phone, calls the SEC, or most likely calls the state regulators and complains and say, hey, look, this guy lost my money or this gal you know, rip me off or whatever. And they open up an investigation. And that's where it starts going south. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I like the uh, distinction there. Now, when we're talking about syndication, at what point does a deal become a syndication? And what point is it just, you know, you're partnering with another person or two people? Is there kind of a critical threshold where it turns from, you know, just you and a couple of friends going in on a deal to syndicating a deal? Yeah, I mean, look, yes. And the minute you go from everyone being actively involved in your deal, which is kind of the way you would kind of get around this, and I hate using the word get around because it makes it look like you're doing something wrong, but if you and two of your buddies or three of your buddies get together and the four of you put the deal together and all four of you are actively involved, then that's not really selling a security. I always said that's kind of starting a business and what it really, from a legal standpoint, we typically would call that a joint venture. So if everybody's actively getting together and everybody puts money, everybody does work, and everybody goes buys a building, then that's a joint venture. That's fine. However, the minute you cross the line where one of the members stops being active and now simply is a passive investor, a passive participant, meaning that they didn't really do anything, they're just writing a check, and then the other four or five buddies are doing all the work, that's where you cross the line. And now you're dealing with the security because the returns are not generated by everybody's efforts. They're generated by typically one or two people, but in this case, maybe even three or four. But the minute you have one person that's not actively involved, that's where you run into the danger of going to the other side and becoming a securities issuance, which now means you've got to comply with all the rules. And raising money for the deal is not necessarily a sign of being actively involved. Is that fair? Raising money is definitely not actively involved. In fact, that's one of the issues that's been popping up again lately, just because it's been so popular lately. A lot of people have been simply raising money for other people. And that's an issue because, again, these are complicated securities laws. And generally, you need a, what's called a broker-dealer license to go raise money for other people. The reason we don't usually worry about broker-dealer laws is because we're typically raising money for ourselves, for our own account, right? We're putting together we want to go buy a building and we're going to organize this syndication and it's maybe me and you, but basically it's the two of us and we're doing all the work. We're both actively, you know, putting this deal together and we go raise a bunch of money. And, but it's not just raising money, right? It's, you've got to underwrite deals. You've got to worry about all the acquisitions and doing the due diligence and talking to the lawyers and underwriting and asset management and investor relations. I mean, everything that goes into a syndication, that's what one person does or two people do. But when you have a third or a fourth person, that's sole responsibility is raising money. Well, now they're getting compensated for raising the money. They're not getting compensated for doing the thing. 
And the minute you start getting compensated just for raising money, then that's broker-dealer activity. If you're the one raising the money, you're going to be accused of basically practicing without a license, meaning you don't have a broker-dealer license, just like you can't practice medicine without you know, a medical license. And in theory, you can't practice law without a legal license. Same thing. You can't raise money without a broker-dealer license. And then the issue for the syndicator, which I care much more about, which is the one doing, putting this together, is you're failing to disclose that you're paying this person to raise money, because why would you? especially if they're supposed to have a license and they don't have a license. So right. the syndicator gets into the problem of not of failing to disclose that relationship and that compensation, which makes them violate you know, the rules. The security rule, the security so not rule. only is that capital raiser at risk, but so is the person putting together the deal and kind of receiving that capital, the syndicator. The person receiving the capital is subject to what's called disgorgement, which essentially means they've got to return any of the monies that they receive for compensation plus interest. And like I said, I'm less worried about that just because, again, my practice, I represent the syndicator, the issuer, and we're always, obviously, we want to disclose everything, right? We want to disclose every single material fact. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Like, if you're an investor, right, and somebody comes to you and makes a recommendation to go buy, let's say you have a deal going and convinces me to go into your deal and that person get compensated, do you think the investor, it would have been a factor in the investor's decision if they knew that person who made the recommendation was getting paid for that recommendation or was getting paid to that right. and that wasn't disclosed. It absolutely is an issue. And so that's the big thing with active and passive when it comes to raising money. You really, if you're going to be in the business of raising money, you either have to raise the money for your own account or if you're you know, the manager of an LLC or a GP or whatever, then you just have to make sure that you're doing real work, right? Substantial work, where the primary duties are actually doing the thing, not raising the money. So Mauricio, you see a lot of people out there in today's space trying to break into the syndication world. One route to do that is to, you know, find an experienced operator, an experienced syndicator, and, you know, learn from them and, you know, tag along however you can help out. Oftentimes that is, you know, helping drum up investor interest. And you even see sometimes people, you know, trying to raise capital and bring to the table. What are the ways you're seeing people are doing this incorrectly? And what are some ways you can do this correctly? The incorrect way of doing it is getting compensated for raising the money. So the most egregious way of doing this and the clear-cut violation is what we call transaction-based compensation, which means, Jacob, I will pay you, usually it's not cash, usually it's a percentage of the deal, but I will give you 5% of the deal if you can raise 500 grand. I'll give you 20% of the deal if you can raise a million bucks. And man, if you can raise it all, I'll give you, you know, 50% of the deal. Yeah. That's going to be clear transaction-based compensation. That's the, the wrong way to do it. The right way to do it is, hey, Mauricio, you come join our team. You do real work. You help us. You know, you're an experienced. Well, it depends whatever value you can add. Whether If it's your right. experience, great. If, and if you're a newbie, maybe you're the gopher and you're running around doing all the dirty work and you're flying down and doing the due diligence and you're walking every unit and you're doing all the ground work or whatever it takes but you're getting compensated for that work, not for raising the money. Now, if you're a legitimate co-sponsor, then obviously your network gets available to everybody else. And now we can access you know, my network and we can send out emails to my list, but I'm not getting compensated for that. I'm getting compensated for doing all this work that I'm here to learn. And so hopefully I've probably got my hands in a little bit of everything, but I'm bringing real value to the co-sponsorship, not just bringing the money. So as long as raising capital isn't your sole responsibility. It's got to be incidental. The key words in the statute are primary and substantial. So your primary duties, which to me is 
pretty straightforward, even though we don't have that much guidance, you know, it, to me, primary means 50% plus one, right? Or yeah, 50% plus. Like majority. So, <laughs> majority. So as long as the majority of the work is doing something substantial, because again, you can't just be going to get coffee at Starbucks and say that, hey, 51% of my time is getting coffee and then the other 49%, it's got to be substantial duties, yeah. but it can be assisting for sure. What are some things you're seeing out there that operators, syndicators are maybe skirting the lines on? You see a lot of people promoting deals and I know under certain offerings you can promote deals, but are there any other kind of egregious or maybe skirting the line things you've seen that you would caution yeah, to be yeah, aware of? You know, the paying money raises is definitely one that we just talked about. The other one is usually on social media. Look, I'm going to categorize this in three different things. Social media, website, and podcasting is probably the top three. Okay. But just disseminating information about your deal with the expectation of not directly, but a lot of people try and get sneaky about it, but essentially drum up interest so that people will call you and potentially invest in your deal as a result of you posting things on social media or talking about on a podcast or sometimes on your website. Everybody forgets the website is blasted to the world. And so that's advertising unless it's password protected or there's a tab that's protected that not everybody can access. So if you're relying on an exemption that prohibits advertising, like the original 506B that we talked about earlier, you cannot go on Facebook and post about the fact that you're raising money for you know, a 100-unit apartment building. You can't even insinuate that you're raising money for 100-minute, you know, kind of a runaround, but it makes it obvious that you are, and people reach out to you. It's like, oh, do you have any room? Or, hey, are you raising money? So that's probably the really the third biggest mistake we've kind of covered all of them almost from my top three, which is not realizing you're investing in a security. Why is the SEC involved? Two, paying money raises and the broker-dealer issues. And the three is the, the advertising, whether it's social media, website. Sometimes it's just, you know, speaking in front of, you know, getting invited to go speak and something and, you know, you pitch your deal. You just can't do that. There's ways so you can do it, but not when you have an active deal. I think once you have an active deal, my recommendation is usually stay off social media. I mean, you can post about your kids and everything, but stay away from talking about your property and your due diligence or your Facebook Live while you're walking the units or just anything like that. I think if you want to be safe, stay off there. So to summarize that and stay safe, you really want to avoid talking about deal-specific kind of topics, but is it okay to go out and say, hey, I'm Mauricio Raul and I have an investment company. We buy apartments in emerging markets and you know across the country, blah, 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 you know, kind of highlight company reel, if you will. Yep, 100%. So there's two things that are clearly allowable. One is, is what you just mentioned. So factual information about you and your company. So just what you just said about the company, or if you want to talk about your experience, knock yourself out, no problem. Value add is the other way to do it. And just add value to the community. You know, typically, we would recommend get, I mean, you want to get their information. So typically, we use what's called the lead magnet, which you're aware of, which you put something of value that people are willing to give you their email or their phone number in exchange for that piece of information. And now you've captured that information legally, again, not referencing any deals or anything. I mean, there's nothing wrong with you putting a report out, for example, that talks about why real estate's the greatest, you know, investment vehicle of all times, or why this Houston is the greatest marketplace or Miami's a great, whatever. Yeah, then, right or some report or some webinar or some something that then you get their email address or phone number. And then that's where you have to then take those additional steps. You can't offer them a deal. You've never met this person. You don't have a pre-existing substantive relationship, which we talked about earlier. And so you've got to now start that process of establishing that relationship so that you can offer them a future deal. Still can't offer them a current deal, which again, I wouldn't be doing that if you had a current deal anyway. 
Amaricio, maybe somebody has the temptation of thinking, hey, I'm just raising money from friends and family. This deal is a home run. Nothing's going to go wrong. Why do I need to go through all the hassle and paperwork and cost of doing this syndication? What would you say to that? You know, something random could happen like a global pandemic where everything kind of goes wrong (laughs) and you didn't think about it. Look, I give the same advice, by the way, to clients who say, look, it's my dad, right? Or it's my brother. Like, do I really need to do all this stuff for my dad? And my answer is, yeah. I mean, there's no exemption of family. Just because he's your dad or your mom or sister, there is no exemption that allows you to skirt the rules. Now, what are the odds that your dad sues you for something or your family member? It's happened before. I'm not saying it will, but legally speaking, it doesn't get you off the hook, no matter how close you are with your friends and family, how much of a home run you think this is. You can always rely on the good deal defense, right? I mean, again, like we said at the beginning, you could violate every single rule in the book. uh, And if everybody's happy with the outcome, then there's a very small chance that somebody will complain. I don't think it's 100%, but it's pretty close that Unless somebody complains, you know, the SEC doesn't have a bunch of watchdogs going through and scrolling through all your stuff, I don't think, or calling randomly investors to see if they've been harmed. I mean, typically it starts with a complaint. And so if everybody's happy, that's great. But if things go wrong, as we all know, things go wrong. And even things we don't even think about, like what's going on with the pandemic, then that's the reason you want to make sure that you spend a little bit of money in the front end. Otherwise, you're guaranteeing the investors' returns. I mean, that's kind of the main penalty, so to speak, is you're basically guaranteeing their investment, meaning their investment went south, no fault of your own, but you're going to have to now make them whole plus interest, even though you didn't do anything wrong, other than you didn't cross your T's and dot your I's and get all the paperwork done. Sure. Well, for the possible syndicator out there, Mauricio, what's the proper sequence of events here? Do you get the deal, then contact your syndication attorney? Do you get the syndication set up before the deal? What does that process look like and what do you recommend? It depends on the type of raise that you're doing. There's really two main types of raises. One is what I call a project-specific deal, meaning you find, let's use apartments, you find a property, and then you know exactly how much money you need to raise and what you're going to do with that property, and so you go do it. In that case, you obviously would be contacting your attorney, you know, probably as soon as you enter into contract, or you're pretty sure you're going to enter into contract, that's when you would contact the attorney. On the other hand, the other type of investment that or raise you could do is what we call a fund meaning you know the type of things you want to buy, but you don't have anything specific. So you raise the money first, and then you give your investors kind of parameters of the kinds of things we're going to buy. So for example, that typically happens in single family. Hey, I'm going to go buy 20 or 30 single family homes. I have not identified them yet, but they're going to cost me you know, 2 million bucks. And so I'm going to go raise the $2 million first. Once the money's in my bank, then I'm going to go look for those properties pursuant to the parameters that I told all my investors we were going to look for. And so obviously in that scenario, there's no reason to wait. You're not going to wait till you have a property. You're going to call your attorney as soon as you think you're ready to go. And we can get everything you know, set up so that you can then start raising the money and then start looking for the properties. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Mauricio, as we're starting to wrap up here, is there any other advice you'd like to kind of leave with the audience members? Maybe something I should have asked you that I didn't? You know, one of the things I'm seeing, and I thought that's where we were going to go the last question, you really should contact your securities attorney early on in the process. I've seen a lot of coaches and people who are kind of teaching this or were teaching this to wait until you know you're going to get the deal, meaning you're going through due diligence. And once you kind of pass that go, no, go, and you know you're going to close, that's when you call the attorney. The conversations you're going to have with your lawyer on the front end will dictate what you can and cannot do throughout the process. So the last thing you want to do is call the attorney 
late in the process, not so much because of a time crunch, not because, oh my God, I got to close now in three weeks and we got to get all, all these paperwork done. But more importantly, you may have done something that now prohibits you from doing something. Like you may have made some posts without knowing on social media oh, and right. now you cannot rely on 506B and so you cannot take non-accredited investors. So the first call with the attorney is critical because that will lead into the discussion of to what path are we going to take and then you want to make sure you're following the rules for that particular path. Yeah, okay. Yeah, awesome stuff, Mauricio. Well, hey, let's go ahead and start wrapping up here. We've got a lightning round. It's a series of questions we like to fire at every one of our guests. Are you up for it? Let's do it. All right, cool. The first question is, what was your biggest hurdle getting started investing in real estate? And then what did you do to overcome it? The first hurdle was really just the information overload, like just learning all that stuff and just signing on the dotted line on that first deal. That's the hardest thing to do especially when you're a newbie. So just finding the right people. I was lucky enough to find the real estate guys back in the day. I'm finding people that you trust to go find that first deal and be confident to go in it. Yeah. And we didn't even get into any of the specifics of your background in real estate, but I know that you practice what you preach here and you are an active real estate investor, but we wanted to keep the kind of focus of the conversation around SEC stuff. But yeah. Uh, Mauricio, do you have a personal habit that contributes to your success? <laughs> I get up ridiculously early. I've been sleeping in lately, though. I've, I've been getting up around 5 or 5.30. But, you know, if you had this question a month ago, you know, I usually would get up around 3.30, 4 o'clock and just have that morning time. I've got two little kids. So, you know, once they get up, you know, by 7 o'clock, you know, my morning's kind of shot. So you get a lot accomplished with, you know, at 3.30 in the morning, even on the East Coast where a lot of my clients are, it's early over there. And even if they email you at that time, they're not expecting a, <laughs> a response. So yeah, right. that's one of the things that's changed a lot is just getting up super early. Now, again, I go to bed super early, so it's not, it's not nothing spectacular, but I used to get up and, you know, 3.30, 4 o'clock, which is, uh, makes a huge difference. Yeah, I love it. Well, do you have an online resource you find valuable in your day-to-day? -day? I don't know if this is cheating or not, but I mean, I spend a lot of time on social media and I think it's a great vehicle and great resource for all kinds of different things. But certainly if you're a syndicator to get your message out and do it the right way, value add and you know, expand your network, especially when you're in between deals. It's just a great way to get new people and new relationships. And so I think that's an awesome resource and it's helped me well, especially even on the legal side, just getting my message across. Yeah, you personally do a really good job. I think that's maybe how I came across you is maybe some of your social media stuff from your YouTube and Facebook pages, but we'll certainly link those in the show notes for our audience members to check out. I appreciate it. Mauricio, what book would you recommend to the listeners and why? Just one. You know, I just finished reading. It depends on what you're looking for. So if you're looking to scale your syndication business, you know, Traction by Gina Wickman's a great book. I highly recommend that book. If you're looking for sort of maximizing the time, you know, sort of not quite time management, but just getting more out of the day than you are, than The One Thing by Gary Keller is an excellent book. Mm -hmm. And then obviously on the real estate side, partial, you know, the real estate guys, Robin and Russ have a great book called Equity Happens which I love on the real estate side. And then finally, if nobody's read it, then maybe ahead of all of those books, to be honest with you, is Rich Dad, Poor Dad, obviously, from Robert Kiyosaki. Great. All great recommendations. I haven't read Equity Happens yet, but uh, yeah, great, great suggestion of books. We'll link all those in the show notes. Mauricio, last question in the lightning round. If you were to go back and give advice to your 20-year-old self to get started investing in real estate, what would you tell 20-year-old Mauricio? What are you waiting for? <laughs> You know, there's a joke that says, you know, the best time to buy real estate is now and the best time was 20 years ago. So, you know, for me, my 20 year old would have been 27 years ago. I would have been like, dude, get on it. <laughs> yeah. 
I completely agree. We get that a lot. I think it's one of those things you buy real estate and wait. You don't wait and buy real estate, right? That's a great quote. Great quote. Awesome. Good stuff. Well, Mauricio, hey, it's been a lot of fun having you on the podcast. Look forward to having you back on the future. Really appreciate your time and sharing all this actionable content and this great insight around kind of a world that many people don't dive their kind of toes into as much. So really appreciate your time. As we're wrapping up here, any parting piece of advice or any last minute words you'd like to leave with our audience members? Just, you know, if if you haven't done syndication, think about it. It's a great way to scale your business. There's only so much you can do on your own. And so at some point you run out of money and that doesn't mean you've got to run out of deals. You can continue going with the power, power of the group. Great stuff. I love it. Well, Mauricio, tell people where they can find more about you and connect with you if they've got any further questions. You know, like you mentioned, I've got a YouTube channel that I'm trying to add more and more to that's got a lot of content to just Google, you know, Mauricio Raul, and I'll Google YouTube Mauricio Raul. Otherwise, my website is premierlawgroup.net. And if they want to get a hold of me, team at premierlawgroup.net will get to me and I've got a lot of resources I'm happy to share with you. Great. Thanks so much, Mauricio. We'll link all of those in the show notes. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Right, that wraps up this week's episode with our guest, Mauricio Raul. Hey, I hope you got so much value from that conversation with Mauricio. If you want to learn more or check out any of those resources we mentioned in the show notes or reach out and connect with Mauricio, you can find all of those links in the show notes. As always, for more information, resources, and to connect with me, you can do so at www.jacobairs.com. Well, hey, I know that during these times, we are social distancing, and if you need a little human interaction or want to catch up and talk real estate, feel free to reach out. I'd love to hear from you. You can do so at the website by scheduling a call or just sending a message. As always, engineer the lifestyle you want. You've been listening to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast, providing you actionable content to build your real estate empire. Nothing on this show should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for personal advice. The opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have a potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom, LLC, exclusively.